And it, and that made me think that maybe it's in the noticing that we interact with the with divine presence. And that made me think that maybe that's what prayer really is all about, noticing. Hello, friends, and welcome to another episode of the Accidental Tomatoes podcast. I'm your host, Joe Webb, and this is a podcast for spiritual exiles, for all of us who are looking for faith and spirituality outside the fences and the walls of institutional Christianity. Before we get started with this episode, I would like to very quickly remind you, as always, that you can find all of the content that our team is creating for our community on our website, AccidentalTomatoes.com. Go there to find every episode of the podcast, as well as blog entries on a wide variety of topics related to religious deconstruction, social justice, and liberation theology. And if you're inspired by our work and would like to support us, please leave us a rating and review wherever you listen to your podcasts or visit our Patreon page at patreon.com slash accidental tomatoes to learn how you can help us create and curate content that's helping people navigate the difficulties of spiritual trauma and deconstruction. Accidental Tomatoes is the official content site for New Wineskins, a non-traditional liberation-oriented online faith community rooted in deep, authentic conversation. New Wineskins is a member of the Reconciling Ministries Network and is open to anyone seeking to explore faith and spirituality on a deeper level than many can experience in the institutional church. If you're looking for a community where you can express your deepest doubts, ask your hardest questions, and be welcomed unconditionally, feel free to visit one of our weekly Zoom gatherings. Learn more by visiting newwineskinsnetwork.org. So if you're a regular follower of the podcast, you will no doubt notice that this is the second episode in a row that I'm doing as a, a monologue rather than an interview. And so I just say that so, to let you know, don't worry if you are a fan of our regular interview format, we're certainly going to continue to provide you with great interviews with interesting people who are doing good work in the world. But every now and then, um, as our team you know, kind of evolves and, and we are trying to work out schedules. We just hit little snags here and there. And and sometimes we learn that we need to kind of tweak the way we do things a little bit just to try to keep things interesting for our listeners and readers. And we're kind of in one of those times right now. One of the things I like to say in our new wineskins community is that everything is always an experiment. And we're we're just constantly learning and failing forward, as the saying goes, um, in order to try to keep growing and keep improving and to keep offering you the content that you want from us. And since I seem to have a bottomless well of half-written blog posts and drafts of articles tucked away in various folders on my MacBook, I thought I would take this opportunity for this episode to share a few thoughts about my own deconstruction process that I haven't really published anywhere before. Um, And so while we're kind of sorting out some of our future goals and plans for the podcast, um, we're going to do just a little deconstruction work here. One of the things that I have said in previous episodes of the podcast and in some of my blog posts is that my personal experience of spiritual deconstruction and reconstruction is far less linear in nature than it is dynamic, right? I I like to use the metaphor of waves as a way of describing the way that I experience deconstruction. I I heard um, Pete Enns and Jared Bias of the Bible for Normal People podcast at Wild Goose Festival this year, uh, calling this whole process um, of They called it um, orientation, disorientation, and reorientation. I really like 
that language too, right? Orientation, disorientation, and reorientation. Richard Rohr often refers to it as the process of order, disorder, and reorder. I, I think that that language can be really helpful um, for, for people who maybe are kind of getting tired of hearing about deconstruction and reconstruction or who really don't have a frame of reference for exactly what that means. For me, I like to talk in terms of deconstruction and reconstruction because it um, it implies a sense of intentionality. Um, but at the same time, I know that a lot of people um, find themselves in deconstruction far less as something that they chose than something that they were thrust into. So all of that is to say, use whatever language works best for you for, for this process. I think that the concepts we talk about within the frameworks of deconstruction or disorientation or disorder, whatever you want to call it. I think these concepts that we talk about are more important than the labels that we place on these frameworks. So anyhow, waves. For me, deconstruction always has and continues to always come in waves. And I like that description because of how actual waves work, like, you know, in the ocean or on a lake or something. There's always one wave coming in as another one is going out. It's this, it's a perpetual cycle, but it's not exactly cyclical, right? If you know anything about spiral dynamics, that's more of the way that I, that I kind of look at all of this. There, there's always new information and new experiences that are overlapping old ones, but they're also always building off of what came before to lead somewhere new. And when you think about that, it's really only natural, right? As you, as you gain more clarity in one area, it's inevitably going to lead to, to more questioning and more exploration in other areas. So back, you know, in the early days of the pandemic, honestly, it was actually really throughout almost all of the year 2020, I found myself in this deep wave of deconstruction that was really all about language, deconstructing language and the way that words inherently limit what they are meant to represent. Now, what that looked like in practical terms for me was trying to become more and more cognizant of how, like, especially how insider religious language could become, even unintentionally, a, a tool for exclusion. Personally, I had already kind of developed a habit along these lines, um, for instance, uh, just of not using gendered language for God, right? Um, but the deeper my linguistic deconstruction went, the less willing I was even to use the word God to describe, um, I guess, divine presence is sort of my currently preferred language for that, but but that could change tomorrow. But but anyhow, so coming out of that particular wave of, about, you know, trying to, to, to break apart language and the way we use language and to think about language differently, coming out of that, I, I started to be able to recontextualize some of that language in, in ways that, for me at least, I, I find more helpful. Hopefully other folks do too. But recognizing, of course, that language itself is always limited, especially when it comes to language's ability to describe experience. So as this wave of linguistic deconstruction receded, I noticed that there was 
a, a new swell, so to speak, rising on the horizon. Because as I worked through the limitations of language to describe God or to describe spiritual experience in general, I started to realize how limited language is in attempting to converse with the divine, or, or in other words, you know, what it had to do with what we might call prayer. Let me, let me just kind of back up for a moment to, to maybe hopefully clarify the point. Part of some of my earlier waves of deconstruction, um, you know, years, years ago, involved kind of dismantling that idea of God as a being. In other words, I kind of got to the point where I really could not any longer conceive of what we call God as a kind of like, you know, superhuman in the way that most of us in many, um, at least Christian traditions, were taught to believe. This idea of God as some kind of like all-powerful old man in the sky who manipulates and controls events in people's lives really just became far too limited and too limiting in my thinking. Honestly, I began to realize that all that was was just anthropomorphizing God, right? Imposing our own human experiences on what we believe God, so to speak, to be. Basically, God became more just a more powerful version of ourselves. So instead of conceptualizing God as a being, I started to, to conceive of what we call God as not as a being, but as being itself. Now, by the way, this has been the way of mystics and contemplatives for millennial, but getting there requires a lot of unraveling, which, by the way, I think is another kind of good word for deconstruction that our friend Sarah Farish used a few episodes back. Uh, uh, unraveling um, a lot of the things that we've been taught in more kind of traditional Christian formation. Even when you think about it, even the biblical language for how God is believed to describe God's self kind of hints at all of this, right? In, in the scene in Exodus with Moses and the burning bush, and, and Moses, you know, demands a name and, and gets this response, I am, right? I am is not a descriptor of a person or a being, but of the fact of existence itself. So when it comes to prayer, you know, how, how is it that you talk to being that's not a being? How do you talk to being? How do you hold a conversation with someone or something who isn't a someone or something at all, but is simply, I guess, isness, right? It, it all made me think twice, um, not really just about how to pray, but really about what prayer actually is. And if, if prayer is not conversation or communication in the way that we traditionally think about those things, what is it at all, really? Maybe maybe I can tell a little bit of a story to, to help make the point. A few years ago, I had one of those like weird, unexpected, out-of-the-blue thoughts pop into my head that uh, I needed to check in on this friend of mine who had been in a, a pretty significant crisis situation. And so, you know, as the thought occurred to me, I thought, you know, I'm just going to 
text him and check in on him. Um, and we texted back and forth a little bit. And then he, he said, you know, why don't you just come down to the office and, and let's chat for a little bit. So, so I jump in my car, I'm on one end of town and I make it to my friend's workplace on the other end of town. And, and the whole way through, I don't, I did not hit a single red light. I had green lights all the way through. Now my like old, I guess, religious framework would have had me believe that, you know, God made me think about my friend and and made me send that text and then made all of those lights turn green just for me, you know, just to expedite, you know, this this preordained meeting that I was supposed to have with this friend of mine. And, and honestly, even at the time, thinking that way seems a bit ridiculous to me. But the thing is, you know, it's not that I sensed that God made all of those things happen, but I did notice those things. I noticed that I had this kind of thought out of the blue about my friend. I noticed that, um, or I responded right to this idea um, by by just reaching out with a text. I noticed that every single light was green that day, right? It, it wasn't that I believed again that, you know, God manipulated all of that. But I noticed it, and and that made me think that maybe it's in the noticing that we interact with the with divine presence, and that made me think that maybe that's what prayer really is all about: noticing. I honestly find it, and, and I might I, I'll probably get in trouble for saying this, but I find it honestly unreasonable to believe that some supernatural being named God or, or whatever name, you know, we, we call that being by that, that that being would act in real time in reaction to some request that I might make in what I would call a prayer, right? Whether, whether it's spoken aloud among other people, or if it's just silently in my mind, I just, it, it seems like a stretch to me to think that there's sort of this quid pro quo relationship there. But maybe my prayer makes me notice the things that that divine presence is already up to. Now, we might interpret that as, you know, prayer being answered, but is it actually less about a supernatural response than it is about placing ourselves in, in a place of openness and awareness to the ways that the divine, the divine presence, we could call it existence or reality or being or isness in the way that that presence reveals itself to us. Back several years ago, when um, when I was a, a youth leader in my local church, I was I would teach teenagers about prayer, like in youth group or Sunday school or whatever. Um, and, and I I now know that I was teaching from a very rudimentary perspective about it, but, but I used this, uh, I would use this admittedly oversimplified and somewhat awkward object lesson to, to try to help them understand prayer as something different than just, you know, kind of like sharing our wish lists with God, you know, filling out our, um, our Christmas list for Santa Claus or whatever. Right. So here's how this lesson went. Suppose there's this family in your church and every week, this family asks for prayer for their Uncle Peter, right? Uncle Peter needs a liver transplant. And so every week, you know, the congregation prays that the doctors will find a donor and that Uncle Peter will get his transplant and live a long, healthy life. Really, you know, very noble thing to pray about, very compassionate 
thing to, to pray about. Now, let's say in the same congregation, there's this other family who has this Uncle Paul, uh, and Uncle Paul recently suffered a, a debilitating stroke, right? And every week, this family asks for prayers for Uncle Paul's recovery, and the congregation prays that Uncle Paul will get well and, and that the doctors and caregivers will um, do everything they can, you know, to, to help him recover. Now, somehow along the way, it's discovered that both Uncle Paul and Uncle Peter have the same rare blood type. And it turns out that Uncle Paul's still healthy liver would be a perfect match for Uncle Peter, which sets up the potential, right, for kind of a massive conundrum. There is a sense in this scenario that for Uncle Peter to live, Uncle Paul might have to die. And if Uncle Paul were to recover, it could mean that Uncle Peter never gets his transplant and he either passes away or at the very least has to deal with a long debilitating illness. And so then the question becomes, you know, having this knowledge, what should the congregation pray for? How, how do they pray for Uncle Peter to get well if that's going to be at the expense of Uncle Paul and vice versa, right? Now, I know most folks, many folks anyhow, in this situation would simply just say something like, well, we just need to pray that God's will is done, right? And we just need to learn to accept that that God's understanding is higher than our own understanding, right? And, and that might be true, but it's not very helpful, really, is it? And the reason for that, I think, goes back to this whole idea of the way that we've made prayer largely just transactional, right? We ask God for something and we either get it or we don't. And please don't come at me with that whole, sometimes God just says not now or not yet business. That's just, I'm sorry, that's just kind of lazy theology in my point of view. But see, the other thing that often happens with prayer, in addition to being transactional, is that it can also become mostly performative, right? Like saying grace before every meal, for instance, especially if you're in, you know, like a public place of some kind. Now, it's all well and good to be thankful for the provision of our sustenance. But do we say those prayers really because we're really thankful? Or if we're honest with ourselves, do we do it because we're afraid we'll get in trouble if we don't, or because we want everyone else in the restaurant to know that we're good Christians, you know, saying our meal prayer. Or, and I, I think this might be a lot of it, is it just kind of a good luck charm, right? A, a superstition, a cosmic rabbit's foot hanging from our existential rearview mirrors. See, as long as our prayers remain transactional and performative, I think maybe we're missing the point because those prayers, when you think about it, really have nothing to do with God. They just have everything to do with us. They're our way of seeking control over situations where we feel utterly out of control. And so we kind of use these, you know, incantations, for lack of a better word, to control the God that we think is control in control uh, of everything. Now, in the interest of full disclosure, I do still pray. I do still pray, honestly, 
transactionally and performatively. I pray for the health and safety of myself and my family. I pray for desired outcomes in difficult situations. I pray for people who need liver transplants and families whose loved ones have suffered strokes. I ask for divine intervention on a daily basis. Because honestly, most of the time, I don't know what the hell else to do. And and maybe, maybe that's the point. Maybe it's not supposed to be about getting what we want or reinforcing our, our sense of piety. Maybe it's just a way of admitting that we have zero control over anything in this world and hoping that there's something true about divine love that we can trust when we come to the end of ourselves. And maybe that's what prayer is. Maybe that's what it really means to be a person of faith. I'm learning, and I guess maybe this is kind of my warning, I'm learning that deconstructing prayer is a massively difficult undertaking. It requires recognizing long ingrained habits and patterns, confronting deeply embedded belief systems and engaging in a fair amount of existential wrestling, right? All of that is to say, don't go there if you're not ready. Don't force yourself into that that wave of deconstruction, so to speak, if you're not ready to do the, the really hard, intensive work that it's going to take. But also know that by shifting our perspective from transactional and performative paradigms to, to, to just simple acts of presence and attention, of noticing that, that a deeper revelation and more transformative experience of the divine is, I believe, is possible. And, and that's my prayer for the world. So thanks for listening. Uh, again, you know, we're, we're going to get back to our interview format um, very soon, but, um, but I do have a lot of thoughts uh, about deconstruction, and I'm, I'm really grateful to have a chance to share some of those with you. Um, I hope that, that you'll reach out and maybe start a conversation. As always, if you have comments or feedback on this episode or suggestions for future episodes, um, you can find us anywhere in the social media world, uh, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Just do a search for Accidental Tomatoes and drop us a note there. Or you can always send us an email to accidentaltomatoes at gmail.com. And so until next time, my friends, keep on growing outside the fences and join us for another brand new episode of the Accidental Tomatoes podcast. <laughs>